This is a piece by a guy named Larry Taunton. Larry who? Never heard of her. What sort of a man is he? Pick from Bama. A man like any other, but more so. Well, I thought he was dead. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. Let's light this candle. Welcome to the Larry Alex Taunton Show. I am your host, Amy Beth Shaver. Larry Alex Taunton, your man in the field. <laughs> that was powered by donuts and a scone. <laughs> I, uh, you know, we've been having a lot of fun this morning, so much so that this is about our fourth take, you know, to begin the show. And our producer, Matt Roth, is slightly annoyed with our childish behavior. But welcome to the show. Amy Beth, how are you doing? You know what? I'm great. <laughs> I have a car without a dent. It has cute new tires, and it's good. First Maybe we just sounded problems. like a plane was strafing us uh, just it a minute did, ago. Matt that was brought us. Yep, and Matt brought us um, some uh, Krispy Kreme donuts, which was awesome. And then Lori made some. I was taught scones. It, both are acceptable, scone and scone, but I grew up in a very British tradition. My mother's a Canadian, British Columbia. They always said scone, but whatever it is your preference to say, either or. It sounds neither, fancier neither. Uh, when you say scone. Yeah. So the question is, how do you say macaroon? Is it macaroon or macaron? I say yum. <laughs> <laughs> well played. Well played. Also sugar speaking and some good coffee your wife just brewed. Yes, very good. Uh, so how are things this week? Uh, it's been a very good week. Um, I uh, have been very busy. for Well, first of all, it was Labor Day weekend. And, and so our house was slammed with all kinds of people. You guys were, uh, were, were enjoying a little vacation, a little respite. We were too. Um, I have to say for my wife, it's not really much of a respite because she's making a lot of food and she's preparing a lot of bedrooms and uh, keeping people happy. Uh, I'm busy hosting and just being the big personality who walks around and, you know, doesn't Are do you anything. having a good time? <laughs> what can my wife get you? <laughs> um, but um, no, it was a great weekend. Really enjoyed it. And as we said last week, football season is here. And I'm looking forward to Alabama absolutely beating the crap out of Texas this weekend. That's what I hope happens. So there we go. I felt like this was the best arrangement of a of a Labor Day weekend with the football starting really, I guess there's a Thursday night game. No one pays attention to that. But like Friday and then all day Saturday, it was delightful. And the games were great. The games were great. Notre I mean, Dame and uh Notre Dame and Ohio State was a pretty good game through three quarters. Uh, Appalachian State in North and Carolina. Was that not amazing? It was an insane uh, ball game. It was fun to watch. And those are the most fun because I don't have a dog in the fight. So mm -hmm. I don't really care about the outcome. Um, the FSU-LSU game. Unbelievable game. Which was insanity. And I'm just sitting, you know, just, just enjoying, you know, just enjoying all of it. So it was a lot of fun. And I love the fall, you know, where it's not in Alabama, where where the two of us live. Um, what we would call fall is probably not what someone from the Northeast would call fall, meaning, you know, the temperatures drop into the 80s. You know, so it's uh, it's cooler weather, but the evenings are getting a, a little so bit cooler. Nice. Leaves haven't started to change or anything yet, but it's um, 
but it's getting very nice. So yeah, I, I can't complain. Life is good. It's, it is very good and it is exciting. I just found out. Not in out, this country, but life no, is good. Life is good. Life is good in spite of what is going on yes. in our country. Uh, no, I just found out that a child will pop in for the weekend, which is also delightful because as you know, when they fly the coop and then they say, hey, can I pop in? Because I have a job starting, I'd like to come in. I'm like, uh, yes. So it'll be a festival of baking and football for us this weekend. So, good. So it'll be good. You yeah, know? that that will be very... Our priorities are straight. Good. Well, I believe it. Uh, I believe you're very organized. I'm sure that you have it all... <laughs> <laughs> you know, we all had this whole discussion out. about women organizing leadership. It's going to be a whole other podcast. Yeah, that's a... That's everything. You know, my my wife has to tell me where to be and when to be there. In fact, we there was some exchange the two of us had, and I remember telling you, remind me and make sure I show up because I may not. So um, yes, I am. I'm there for all of that. Well, it, you know, it's a good time. So we have a great show planned today. Yes, we do. Um, we have a guest. We do. And I'm very excited about this guest, and not just because presently where he lives is near where I was born, so I'm partial, um, but I'm excited to hear his perspective. I think he brings uh, a weight to it, and I'm, I'm looking forward to that. We're also going to be discussing... And I'm, I'm, and I'm amazed Joe Biden would agree to appear on our show. I know. Can you believe it? It's pretty amazing. I mean, amazing. it took a lot of doing. He he won't remember this interview. He won't. But we're going to do it, and we're going to do, gonna it, do well. it anyway. Yes. And, uh, so we're Absolutely. glad. We're, we're grateful to the part. White House um, and uh, that Joe Biden will join us on the show today. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, continue. I'm so sorry. No one, no one leave. Um, he doesn't even know he's coming, but he's coming. Uh, the, the other thing we're going to do is really dig into Joe Biden's speech, and maybe he'll go through with it, you know, piece by piece. Uh, you wrote a great article. It has gotten great reviews, and I know we won't go, you know, bit by bit through it, but a really good perspective, because I think that's what people about are looking for. About his crazy speech. About his absolutely crazy pants. I would like to say another descriptor, <laughs> but I will refrain so that we can stay on um, our networks, right? It was crazy and yeah, th- that look is like all he gave say. it from the bowels of hell. Yeah, you know, there were, we're talking about the Independence Hall um, address that Joe Biden gave um, a little over a week ago. Well, a week ago today, yeah, uh, he gave this speech, and um, right in front of Independence Hall, that is that is illuminated in blood red hues, and uh, what that speech is all about. Yeah, we're going to talk about that today. So it'll be very good, and maybe a book, maybe a movie or two. Um, but it's chock full of goodness today. And that's not just because your wife made delicious lemon scones or <laughs> because we ate donuts. Okay? So get yourself together. Stick around. We have a fantastic show for you. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. Larry is my favorite player. Welcome back. We would like to welcome our guest, John. Rushamiza. How are you, John? I am doing good. Yeah? John is a guy that I... First of all, John, you bear a striking resemblance to Joe Biden. I don't agree with that. You don't think so? I don't think so. Now, make sure you're speaking up, John, so that our audience can hear you. You agree with that or you don't I agree do with not, that? I do not agree with that. Okay. No. Who do you think you look I, like? I believe I look more like Joe Biden's boss. <laughs> Barack Obama. So you think he's the guy who's he's the puppet master? He's the guy pulling the strings. Yes, yes. I, I forgot to say his middle name, Barack Hussein Obama. Yeah, well, that's, that's significant. Like. 
It is significant. It is significant. John is a guy that I asked to come on to the show because I've gotten to know John just a little bit on social media. John's come to one of our events, you know, understanding what's happening in America. You came to last year in Birmingham, Alabama, and got to hear all the uh, the wonderful um, speakers that we had for that event. But I don't know what you're going to say on this show. Now, I do reserve the right to not air this show if you say things that I don't like. You know, so I can't actually, you know, throw this into the editing trash can. Mm. But my sense is, uh, uh, John, is that you love this country. And I'm curious, you know, having traveled a ton myself, we encounter so many people in this country. You're, I think you told me you're 37 years old. Yes, um, you are, um, you know, I thought I had this thing turned off and clearly I don't. Uh, it was, it's a viewer who says, ask John if he's married. I am. You are I married. Am. And, and your wife, now you're from Rwanda. Yes. Came to this country at age 20. Yes, sir. And uh, your wife, she's, uh, she's born and raised uh, in this country, in the United States. Yes. My wife, Shanice Rushemeza, she actually is... Um, uh, Hispanic by ethnicity. She's Puerto Rican. And she was born and raised in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Okay. okay. Well, then you need to shave the mustache, John, um, so that you will fit in among the Amish there. Yeah. You know, you look very Amish. You know, so if if you were to... <laughs> obviously. It, obviously. And uh, do you use a horse and buggy? No, but I do tell people that I'm black Amish. I do say that. Yes. Does it work? Sometimes. You know, there was this show, uh, The Amish Mafia, and they had a black guy in there. So sometimes it works. Seen this show. Well, okay, I need to see that. So is this show. on Netflix or something? It, I don't know where it is, but it aired on TV for. I think maybe like three seasons or something like that. Is it true that the Amish, and this is a serious question, I am seeing on Twitter more and more video that suggests the Amish are starting to actually get fairly politically engaged. Like I saw, for instance, just today, a number uh, in Lancaster County, a number of horse and buggies that were, you know, had Trump flags and things yeah. like this. Is this, is, is this a myth or is this actually happening? No, it's true. It's true, and it started with Trump in 2016. They they came out heavy uh, for Trump. So, yeah, it's true. They, they're coming out heavy now for um, the governor, Doug, I think, Mastriano. So it is true. Well, what we'd really like to talk with you about today on this uh, on this show, and stop fooling with that. You see, it's very distracting for people who are uh, you know who are watching. You know, John, you have to learn the rules of television. <laughs> you can't be doing. You know, it's funny. My wife says to me all the time that I fidget constantly. She says, "You know, Amy Beth is sitting is sitting so. You know, her look at her right now. She has she has." <laughs> She has the, um, you know, the the beauty queen posture. Uh -huh. I'm sure if you looked under the table, you'd see her legs are at the perfect, you know, angle. Uh -huh. And I'm moving all over the place. I'm scratching. I'm, you know, doing. Yeah, I, I would spit if I had a spittoon over here. <laughs> so you, you will allow some of that, John. Mm -hmm. But um, you know, you can't be doing too much here with your hands to distract people. I, I'm interested in knowing your perspective on this country because. We have a, in this country um, a lot of young people. You're a millennial, um, but Gen Zers, you know, who are just right behind you, Gen Zers and millennials, many of whom by no means 
all. Uh, my children don't think this. I don't think Amy Beth's children um, think this. If they do, smack them. But <laughs> who really think life in this country is really hard, and they view themselves as victims. Let's talk a little bit about your experience, first in Rwanda and then coming to the United States. Tell us a little bit about life in, uh, in Rwanda, life in Africa. Well, I was born in Kigali, Rwanda, uh, 1985. Um, and um, in 1994, obviously, most people know that the war uh, started and my family and I left the country. And from that point on, we grew up as refugees. Uh, I was fortunate because my parents were educated, so they kind of protected us from uh, a lot of the things that illiterate people would, would be exposed to, like living actually physically in refugee camps and things like that. My parents were resourceful. They, they kind of uh, used their gifts to put food on the table legally. Um, but we still lived in, in, in poor, in the slums of everywhere that we lived. And we Always lived, in Rwanda, or were you in Congo, Uganda, somewhere else? Well, I mean, at post-war. In, in, in 1994, we left Rwanda uh, for political reasons we couldn't stay. Uh, so we lived in Congo for a year. And then from there, we moved to Zambia, in Lusaka, Zambia, where we lived pretty much the rest of the time of our time in Africa, which was a total of about 10 years. And then in 2005, we came to the United States under a refugee status. So we came here as... Ref, uh, Your whole family. Yeah. We resettled to the United States as refugees in 2005. Now, let's back up just a bit. Enlighten people as to what was going on in Rwanda. What what was taking place there for you to be driven out of the country and then eventually come to the United States? Uh, well, in Rwanda, um, the war started between the Hutus and the Tutsis, uh, primarily not regular average people. It was a political war between leaders on this side and leaders on that side. It was sparked up by, largely by the president getting assassinated, the, the president at the time. I like was, the way you put that, got, in, got assassinated. Makes it sound like it was his fault. Did he, uh, did he put himself in the line of fire? What happened there? He was coming back from uh, signing a peace treaty with the now president and their government. Uh, and his plane got shot from, from the air, got, you know, shut down. Um, the debate is who did it. Uh, <laughs> but whatever the case may be, that's what sparked up the conflict. Okay. And so you're, did you have to leave everything behind? Yes, we had to take everything we could carry. We had to take pretty much just clothes and whatever we could carry and left everything. We left our house. My parents, my father had recently built a house from ground up. Um, we left all that behind. And um, so you apply 
to enter the United States, George W. Bush would have been president um, of the United States at, at the time in 2005. Yes. And so you come to the United States. How do you end up in Pennsylvania and of all places, Lancaster County? Well, going back, actually, we applied to come to the United States probably five, five or six years prior. Okay. And so ninety nine, two thousand, somewhere in there. Right. And waited all this time. Uh, maybe four years into it is when we heard back that we were accepted in the process of then getting prepared. It's a whole thing where they prepare you to come to the United States. So you didn't come across the southern border. You didn't walk across the Rio Grande. No, it did not. No, it did not. When we, you we say can, they prepare you, what do they do to prepare you? We had to take classes um, called cultural orientation classes. What where do those they, look like? They teach you a lot of things. And uh, one of the funny things they taught us was how to plastic smile in America. How to plastic smile. Yes. Tell us about that. Let's see your plastic <laughs> smile. <laughs> <laughs> so they were telling you that Americans are fake and you need to um I mean we didn't think so at the time they were presenting it as that's how you politely I guess acknowledge other people but now that I look looking back now I see that it was pretty much teaching us to be fake which I don't do as you can see I don't I haven't practiced my plastic smile in a I long thought time. it was marvelous <laughs> <laughs> Anyway uh, so they taught us you know the the statistics of how many people black people are in prison as opposed to how many are actually in you know not locked up all these all these left wing things almost discouraging us or warning us um uh that's what the class was pretty much about so it wasn't about the constitution or the um the federalist papers or the pledge of allegiance or learning um the history of the country it didn't involve those things no no we, interesting we, we didn't get all that we we only they they told us what we should expect on the ground when we get here the the kind of people the the you know uh, the how many percentage of whites as opposed to blacks as opposed to Hispanics kind of you know I guess what they were trying to prepare us for is when we watch CNN to understand what CNN is talking about. Okay, um, so you. You arrive in this country. Did it meet with those expectations, or what did you find? What were your impressions of the United States when you first arrived here? Well, first of all, the only thing I had to compare to the United States was movies, and so I always had this picture of, you know, everything was perfect. Here. Well, let's let's first ask what movies you watched. <laughs> um. I guess were you a big uh, Baywatch fan, Desperate Housewives? I mean, <laughs> what were you what were you watching? Mostly I watched music videos, hip hop music videos. Okay. Uh and um so I thought I'm I thought this. Okay. Yes, I thought it was uh 
there was one area that was the project and then the rest of the country was pretty much nice roads and the American dream. So is that what you found? Um, first of all, we moved to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which is not that big of a city. So a lot of my expectations were quickly reimagined because I realized that some of the things I saw in movies were kind of unrealistic. Uh, some of my um, understandings of what on the ground, what people look like, and, and even the plastic smile. I did realize that some people do have a plastic smile, though. <laughs> I, did, I, I did see that. But a lot of it was things that I got to realize that people are people everywhere you go. There's really not that much of a difference among people. Uh, and I also found that Americans are a lot of times welcoming and, and, and kind. And that's every American, whites, blacks, Hispanics, all of them. So um, what are your impressions of America now? What are your thoughts on America these days? You've been in this country now for 17 years, right? Yes. And uh, so you, you, you've been here for almost two decades. Have you traveled much of the country? Have you seen much of it? I would like to think so. I haven't been to all the states yet, but I have been to California. I've been to Massachusetts, Vermont, North Carolina, South Carolina, Alabama, uh, New York City, Alabama, twice. Yeah, God's country. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay, okay then. Have you been to Texas? You know, the other I side have of your hat to, says Texas. Yes, I have been to Texas, um, and I love it. Not as much as I love Alabama. Of course not. Uh, so yes, I have been around, uh, and I I love it. I don't think it's racist as. Uh, people tend to present it as on the internet. I think the United States, in my view, is the land flowing with milk and honey, to be honest. And yeah. I'm, not, I'm not trying to say this because I'm, I'm on here. I truly believe this. When I look back to where I came from, I grew up in the slums of Lusaka. Um, and... When I look back, I, I remember everyone that I ever met up until that point always wanted to go to, the, to America. They could settle for France. They could settle for the United Kingdoms. They could settle for even China. But, but if you ask them what's their top, if they had to choose, it's America. Everyone wants to go to America. Amy Beth? So if they wanted to go to America, what were they looking for when they got there? Um, Her question is going to be harder than mine. Well, They're devious, too, so watch out. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll say America is uh, the land of opportunity. Mm -hmm. You know, you everyone that goes to America, uh, it, it's like... You know, sending somebody to college. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody's going to college so they could do better. Mm -hmm. And as a result, they will uh, help the rest of the family. They will be an anchor mm -hmm. for the rest of the family. So the best place that that is 
possible faster mm-hmm. if 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 you work hard and if you apply yourself is the United States of America. So what would you say to the millennials who, or the younger generation that, as Larry referenced a minute ago, they think it's so hard. What, what was it actually like when you say a slum and you grew up and I've only briefly visited the Congo, but what did the slum look like so that people can have a perspective on what that actually means versus where you are today? Um, well, there's no paved roads anywhere near there's no running water we all have to gather only at certain times the water is not running 24 7 we have to all gather at a certain place that has a tap of water and get our water that will last us until tomorrow or the next day um when i was growing up i i remember and this was in the early 2000s late 90s only one person in the entire neighborhood had the TV, and it was black and white. We used to go watch Mike Tyson fight on that TV. Um, and, you know, the houses are not as your normal, typical house here, even in the projects. You know, I've been to the projects in all these, but I've been to the projects in North Carolina, in New York City, and in my own town. Uh, of uh, what well, and in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. and none of it is even anywhere remotely close to to the slums. Most houses have holes in them, and most you're houses talking about in Africa, in Lusaka, Zambia. In, Comparing in, the the projects in the United States to those in in Rwanda, you're saying that the projects are quite nice. The projects are great. I mean, the the it. It's not even a comparison. It's yeah. what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, anybody that wants to compare life here in terms of hardship to anywhere in the world <laughs> needs to travel a little more. And and when you travel, you have to avoid the traveler's fallacy. If you want to know what that is about, talk to Larry one of these days. The traveler's fallacy where you go and stay in a resort somewhere and assume that you know what mm-hmm. what to know about that place if you really want to know hardship abandon everything well don't do that because you right. won't be you won't survive right. the water alone will kill you right because it's not you can't drink safe it. Mm-hmm. yeah for someone whose stomach is used to being in the united states where everything is treated and is you, you're not going to survive just from drinking water alone so Hardship is not in. I, I I don't even know why people people say people need to travel more. That I chalk. I always chalk that to ignorance. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's powerful. So you brought something interesting with you, and that is the oath of allegiance. What what is that? Well, I I I wanted to kind of remember as I talk about why I love the United States of America, I always carry this with me because I want to remember what it means to be an American and why it's a gift that most people will kill for. You know, the people that are crossing the border, you know, uh, whatever you think about immigration, and, and I believe we should protect our borders. I believe... 
it's not so, risk. So as an immigrant, you're not of, pardon me, you're, you're not of the opinion that just everybody should be allowed into the country. That's, that's not realistic. Of course not. I mean, I mean, the, the, the reason we have borders anywhere is not just because we want to <clears throat> hinder everyone from the American dream. It's because if everyone is allowed to come in, they won't, there won't be an American dream to, mm. to speak of. Mm -hmm. mm. So allowing people to just keep coming in is going to take away the American dream. So why would I want everybody to just keep coming yeah, in? Yeah, I, I, I liken it to this. You don't just let anybody in the front door of your house. And you can't just let anybody in the, the front door of your country. Uh, and there needs to be some standard um, of, of like-mindedness, um, I think, is uh, really is what, what the intention always was. You're, you're, it's interesting because you were talking about the classes that you took. And those classes used to be classes where you learned the history of the country, where you were required to, um, to learn um, the, something about the, uh, the founding documents, the you know, Articles of Confederation, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, to learn them. In fact, there was a time where immigrants to this country knew the history of this country and its founding documents better than many citizens did because the courses were quite demanding. And that it was a big moment when you took that oath, you know, to become a citizen in this country because you knew what it meant and you knew the price that was paid for it. And immigrants were people who were often more American, more proudly American mm -hmm. than were many people who'd been in this country, uh, you know, their families generationally. And so in a similar way, you know, letting people into this country, you would you would like to think that there's some standard look if 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 you can't say we hold these truths to be self-evident, you don't belong here. You don't belong here. And uh and yet in spite of the as you described it leftist, you know, indoctrination you were receiving in those classes, you're proud to be an American, aren't you? I'm I'm very proud to be an American. And let me say one thing. Uh, we, I, I did learn the history and the, all these things. Good. When I was getting ready to go get my citizenship, um, did you do that exactly seven years after, or did it take longer? You know, your naturalization. You were, you, you came to the country. You immigrated to the country uh, in two thousand five. When did you become a citizen? Um. Well. My story is a little bit different because when I came here, I made some poor decisions and hang out with the wrong crowd for a good number of years. So that made it harder for, I had some things on my record that made it harder to get approved for citizenship. So believe it or not, I got approved for citizenship in 2019. So not, not uh, terribly long ago. And is it uh, it fair to say what what were the big influences on your life to to make the 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 John Rusha Misa that 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 I know? Well, um, my biggest influence, I guess, is my mom. She's she's passed away. She she never made it to the United States, but she was the big uh, influence in terms of spiritual influence. And my mom was a pastor's kid. 
my my grandfather was a pastor uh, and so I went to church against my will but I'm thankful for that now um and so she was my big influence that she she imparted in me the things that helped me even in my darkest moments to kind of always know where to run to when when the time came and so even even being i guess a conservative i think that's something that most africans have just from kind of how we're raised up but i always thank my mother for that she was really and still is a huge influence on me and how i think and how i look at life in general we'll have to take a break and then we'll come back and we'll wrap up we'll be right back this is the larry alex taunton show larry is my favorite player Welcome back. So, John, let's pick up where we left off. You were talking about your influence and your mother. Tell us more about that. Uh, well, like I said, my mother uh, was a pastor's kid. Uh, my grandfather was a pastor. Fun fact is that my grandfather is actually one of the pioneers of the Protestant church in Kigali, Rwanda. Um and so my mom grew up in church and she was a, a devout uh, Christian woman. And so I was introduced to this to the scriptures and to just uh, God and, and and all that comes with that from a very young age. Um, and uh, up until my mom died, I really didn't have a choice. I had to go to church. <laughs> And you're, you said a minute ago, you're glad you did. Yes. Right? So when did those lessons come back, and when did the Holy Spirit begin to nudge you in that direction? Uh, well, so at the same time that my mom was trying to help me, guide me in, in the way I should go, I also, being a millennial, I was attracted to hip-hop, um, and I wanted to be a rapper. <laughs> we might give you an opportunity to do a little you know, demonstration <laughs> well, on your force. But anyway, uh, go ahead. Well, not after I tell you this next part of the story. <laughs> um, I wanted to be a rapper, and I would write my rhymes, and my mom would find the rhymes, and she would just throw it in the trash because she didn't want me to do that. She She didn't think that was right. Was um, hip hop was that something you were introduced to in the United States, or were you already into hip hop? You know, because it's interesting in Africa. This is shocking to most Americans. Country music is huge in Africa. You know, I arrive at the uh, the airport in Nigeria, and I'm listening to old Hank Williams. <laughs> Um, on the uh, the, the mm -hmm. loudspeakers, I'm hearing Johnny Cash. My driver uh, throughout Ni Nigeria was a huge Rascal Flatts fan. So country music, shocking to to many Americans, is huge in uh, in in Africa. Um, so my question: Hip hop there? Or did you get introduced to it here? Hip hop there. Remember, my mother never made it. To oh, the that's United right. States. That's true. Right. So hip hop there, um, Tupac, Snoop Dogg, uh, those were my idols. 
And so, anyway, my mom kind of slowly killed my uh, potential. She said that. <laughs> she gave it the block. <laughs> His mother's too. Slowly and secretly killed it. And between me and she, I, I mean, now that I look back, I know what she was doing. And, I, and I'm thankful for it, to be honest with you, because um, I think that if I had really invested a whole lot more than what I did in that life, I would have been probably in a lot more trouble than I was. And I was, you know, I got in a lot of trouble. Well, was it with other immigrants that you got into trouble with or was it, um, you know, with other Americans in, in this country or both? Uh, well, when I came to the United States when I was 20, I was already lost. My, my biggest problem was alcohol. And so I went to the streets and did all the street lifestyle to provide for my alcohol and drinking habit. But Africans would actually tell their children to stay away from me. Mm. So m m most of my friends and the people that I, I, I call them associates that I associated with here in the United States in my life of crime were not Africans. They were not immigrants. They were all Americans. Had to say it, mostly African-Americans. Um, this is interesting, and I'm curious as to your reaction to this. I was talking to a friend of mine here. Um, he's a black business owner, and he was telling me that some years ago he was teaching a course to um, uh, African and Caribbean immigrants to this country. And he said, I thought this was fascinating, he said they wanted nothing to do with me personally. He said they, they, they didn't identify with the black narrative in the United States at all. And he said, you know, he's, he's a black conservative, but he said they automatically assumed that I had a victim mentality. And he said they took the, the, the position, we, we need to learn from you what we have to learn to pass this course, but keep everything else over on in your lane. And he said and it took me a long time to build. He says these were Haitians, Jamaicans, I think some Africans. He said it took me some time to build relationships with them because they didn't want anything to do with with me as a black american do you do, is is there truth to that narrative yeah there's a lot of truth to it um and i think in part it's because of that cultural orientation class um like i said one of the things they told us in that class were that most criminals pretty much when you start saying that most people that are in prison are black that's what you're implying. Yeah, okay. Uh, so people don't want to associate with criminals. Africans, in my position, I didn't care, but most people that want to become a citizen at some point, they want to keep a record that ha doesn't have um, that kind of blemish, if you will. Gotcha. So they're trying to... They're 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 trying to uh, obey the laws. They're trying to take advantage of the American dream, and they're thinking that association is not going to be helpful to me. And and they're of that view because that class has kind of kind of inculcated them with that that kind of idea. Right. Well, that that's one of the reasons. But also remember, my mother was killing 
a lifestyle. Your the hip hop lifestyle. <laughs> yeah. So there's a, a culture that comes with that too that is immoral and and most Africans don't want to associate with that. Most other Africans. Now, you know, people like that are my age, 30s, that come here, they don't really have um, as much uh, a bad, I guess, bad thoughts as the older generation did. And, and, and it all has to do with the internet now. Everything is everywhere. You, it's not as hard to get trend in that kind of mindset as, as it was for people like my mom who only knew that this is bad and we're not going to even allow any inch of it in this house. What about your father? What was his influence? My father uh, is an intellectual uh, and you his, said he was he was educated. What is what does he do for a living? Well, or my father my father was uh, in education. Uh, he was actually well placed in in the in the government. He worked for the government of education. Uh, when we left, he was that like the minister of education, and my dad was like the second in charge. Gotcha. Which is in part why we left and couldn't go back. And to this day, he probably couldn't go back because he's not on a good list there. Yeah. He's on the bad list. Um, but uh, my dad was an intellectual. He's an economist by trade. He couldn't really do much in the United States with that because he was trained in France. His tr whole training is, he would have to kind of go to school all over again and, you know. to receive accreditation here. Yeah. And let me just tell you, the French economy is in absolute shambles. So whatever they're teaching people over there about the economy, it's not working. But anyway, continue. I, I will say that my father, having had some recent very good talks with him, after being estranged for a long time, my, I was surprised to, found, to find out that my dad is a free market economist. Mm. Okay. <laughs> and he voted for Trump. Okay. Very good. When, when did you become a believer? Or did, you, or did you become a believer young and then you know, go off the rails and then come back? Tell us a little bit of, of your faith journey. Yes. So my mom did the best she could to expose me to um, the faith. Um, I think I was kind of uh, participated to appease her, but uh, some of it stuck, I believe, because it guided me through my life. Even even as a criminal, there were places I couldn't go because I, I knew that was a little too far, um, and but. Uh, I'll say in 2017, when I was kind of at the end of the road, at the end of myself, is when I really made a, um, a decision to turn around. Um, people had always reached out to me. They, you know, always exposed the gospel to me. And growing up in Africa, you know, I, I knew God, about God, and I knew that the good life is really surrendering to God. 
I knew that and and I I ran away from that. So I always looked at myself as kind of a a prodigal son. Um and so I just knew that I had to go back home. I knew in the Christian community under Christ's lordship was where I would be safe. Mm. So I decided to check myself into a program there in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, a Christian program. I knew that I needed a Christian structure to help me to get out of my my um, my mess. So I went, checked myself in, and uh, kind of officially gave my life to Christ or surrendered to Christ's lordship uh, at that point. And uh, this was in 2017, 2000 and well actually no that's 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 uh further further back i officially turned around in 2011 um and i haven't looked back since so speeding forward this moment when you became a citizen because now you're a citizen of heaven so your eternity is secure you are becoming a citizen of this country what was that like? Um, so when I, when I officially gave my life, you know, surrendered back to Christ, I then knew that I had to start pursuing becoming a, a citizen of the United States uh, because that's, that was always a dream of mine. And like I said, I went to the streets, hanged out with, with uh, the kind of uh, negative influence for as long as I did. And, and I guess I was, I didn't care much about becoming a citizen at that point, but that was always a, a desire of, of mine. I didn't want to be deported. Um, so I uh, started pursuing the dream of becoming a, a a citizen of the United States. I applied and the process up until then took maybe like three years in total. Uh, I'll never forget when, when I received the letter saying I've been approved and now I have to go and take the test that Larry was talking about earlier. And I had, I had to study for the test. At that point, I had been in the United States for almost 10 years. Uh, so I knew a lot of the history and, and, and the things kind of that you need to know to get by in that test. It, it, it wasn't as hard as I thought. Um, but they give you a list of questions, potential questions that you can, <laughs> you can study. And, uh, and you know, it, it's, I always encourage Americans to attend that ceremony. Mm-hmm. Oh. That's one of the best. I mean, it's, it's humbling. Have. Yeah, it, you should. If you have some friends that are planning to become citizens, it, it's it's humbling. It's it's it's. I mean, it. I think one thing that upsets me is when I see people demonizing this country, because I always look back to that ceremony and a group of people from all over the world. It was about. I'll say when I did it, it was about thirty of us from all over the world, um, Asians, 
blacks, whites, I mean, all colors, kind of almost like what heaven will look like. Um, and we all raised our hands and, and pledged, you know, allegiance to, to this country. And, and we meant it and we're proud of it. Well, I yeah, think same. we all did. Um, and, and it was just a, a, a proud moment mm-hmm. of, of kind of, you know, you, you, you made it, you know what I'm saying? You, you're safe now. Mm-hmm. You're, you, you're an American. It's, it's something that I don't understand why people, I guess I, I always look at it as, um, you know, when people are rich and, and they just don't understand what they have. Yes. They don't understand the value of what you have because a lot of times they don't have anything else to compare it to. Uh, but it's just, I don't even know how to explain it. It is. We'll put this up on the screen um, for others to see at some point. But this uh, this is wonderful. The Oath of Allegiance. And then it has on the back the words, the lyrics to the Star Spangled Banner and the Pledge of allegiance. Uh, you know, I'm reminded um, as you're talking, John, when we were adopting um, our daughter Sasha, according to US law, the moments, the moment those wheels touch ground in the United States, she became a US citizen. And uh, uh, in the process of bringing her home, our, th- our thought process was we want to get her out of the country. And we had a layover in um, Paris. And um, Sasha at this point is traveling on a Ukrainian passport. Mm. So it's Lori um, and two of my three boys, Christopher and Zachary, myself and Sasha. So Sasha with her Ukrainian passport and the four of us with U.S. passports. So we come to, um, we have an overnight stay in Paris. And uh, we come to the passport counter uh, in uh, Charles de Gaulle Airport, and they say that the four of us can enter the country, but she cannot. Oh. And it's because a Ukrainian passport, so just a, a, a you know this, it's a, it's a um, not just simply third world, it's a third class passport. And they would say, you know, Americans can come in, but she cannot. And we said, well, there's a problem. <laughs> She's 10, um, and we've just adopted her. Can you please let her in? And they said, by law, she cannot come into this country. But mm. thank God, the you, you seldom can expect this from government, much less French government. But this, this particular passport control guy realized this is unreasonable. She's we're not we're not just letting somebody who's just going to take off and, you know, disappear into our country and become a burden to the uh, to the welfare state. He disappears and he goes and talks to his his boss. And then you see a whole crowd of these immigration officials all talking with each other. It is hard for me to say this without getting emotional. They come back with a form they've signed and they say it's a 24 hour visa to enter the country Mm. and they give it to us and they say welcome to Paris. Mm. Oh wow. And so we drove around that I rented a taxi, um, a van, a minivan taxi and we drove through Paris that night, beautiful evening. There's the the Champs-Élysées, there's the uh the Eiffel Tower, there's the Arc de Triomphe and so on. 
But then we, the next day we boarded a plane and we arrive in Atlanta and Sasha is doing cartwheels quite literally mm. at baggage, baggage claim. And I was talking to the U.S. immigration official and he said, you know, you would think that she knows <laughs> <laughs> that she's now a U.S. citizen. And it was so powerful. Mm. It was so powerful because there was this feeling she now has a level of protection she's never had. She has now become a citizen of this country. We can toss that Ukrainian passport. She's safe. She has the same protections of anyone else in this country. Did you feel emotional the moment she became a citizen of the United States? Well, for me, it was surreal um, because I, like I said, I had done so much to try to, jeopardize that uh, but you know nobody else knew that except me but looking across the room to all these other people we all felt the same way it's not it, it, it is it's a gift that is not afforded to a lot of our own people from where, where wherever every one of those people came from it's not a gift that is afforded to everyone mm -hmm. When your number comes up, it, you know, whether it's by lottery or however way you go about it, it's a gift that for the life of me, I fail to understand why anybody would demonize, will act like, well, I feel sorry for people who don't understand what others have to go through to become a United States citizen. Yeah. Yeah, you... I, 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 Oftentimes, Americans themselves are are not as appreciative of their own citizenship. And I agree with you. I, I think I may make a point to go to one of these ceremonies just to remind me of uh, how fortunate I am to be a citizen of this country. John, thank you so much for sharing your story today. Um, it's very compelling and very convicting. And I think I, too, would like to go and, and watch a ceremony and just just be there. Um, so thank you. Uh, stay tuned. We will be right back. Welcome back. So, you know, teeing off of our last and very important conversation is the whole idea, the whole conversation surrounding Joe Biden's yeah. speech, who clearly hasn't ever suffered in his life and... Um, I, I don't know. And I know we talked about being triggered by his speech, but there were some elements that were behind that speech. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, you know, this actually works quite well with our previous conversation, um, with John and his perspective on this country and that he loves this country. And then he recognized when he came here that he was to use his words, jeopardizing his opportunities to become a citizen in this country by his behavior. Mm -hmm. So John wanted to um, uh, really alter his behavior in such a way that he could become a citizen here right. because he loved this country. Contrast that with a contrast that with a presidential speech <clears throat> where he indicts roughly 85 million Americans. Now, in a, a speech a few days prior to this one, and again, we're talking about Joe Biden's speech at Independence Hall, where the hall itself behind him is underlit 
in this hellish red, you see him flanked by Marines who are like, um, you know, none of their features are distinguishable except for their white gloved hands. Yes. They look like white gloved demons uh, in the background. And uh, you have this image of him, you know, shaking his fists in Hitlerian fashion. And I want to I, I be really clear in saying this. I could find for you a, um, an interview I did just a couple of years ago with um, Jimmy Barrett in Houston. Uh, he's got a big show there. And um, where you have, um, you know, people calling each other Hitler and fascist and this kind of thing. And in that interview with Jimmy Barrett, I said, hold on just a second. We still have, and I say it's it's been two years ago. It's probably been about three. It was pre-pandemic. And I was saying, look. We still have the rule of law in this country. Um, nobody is Hitler. Nobody is fascist. We're not seeing that. That's not what's happening. Ladies and gentlemen, we are now. Mm -hmm. This is what we are seeing now. And one of the things that, that we'll be discussing on this show, I don't know if it's, if it's in the next show or in the one after that, because I'm having to spend a lot of time thinking on this, and I'm trying to navigate the course, you know, how to say this in a way that makes sense to the average reader and it's uh, a listener uh, as well. And that is, what is fascism? What is Marxism? And how is it that we're seeing both in this country? And how does it relate to the policies in this country, to Klaus Schwab, who mm. we're going to be talking yes. about, and the World Economic Forum? Because I promise you they all relate. This is all this is all very real. I, I don't have it, you know, sitting on the table today, but you have people who will say, well, the Great Reset, that's a conspiracy theory. Well, if I had the book, I would hold it up for you that says The Great Reset right. by Klaus Schwab, right. meaning it's not a conspiracy theory. It is a real thing that the media is not talking about and that they are moving in this direction. And this speech, this speech was very much I think one of the one of the dots uh, along the roadmap, the leftist roadmap that's moving us in that globalist direction, because it's necessary to destroy patriotism. Patriotism is the enemy of globalism, as is the Christian faith, mm -hmm. the rights of the individual, the um, the dignity of the individual. That has to be destroyed. And the way they want to destroy it is under the acids of cynicism. It's just to simply uh, point out um, you know, any failures in, in any kind of nationalism, um, in any kind of individuality, the way they do, for instance, with guns. You know, we have the recent shooting in Memphis, therefore the solution must be to round up all the guns. Well, I could just as easily say this presupposes that the government who alone would then have the key to the gun safe, mm. that governments can be trusted with guns. Need I point you to, say, Wounded Knee? We, need I point you to Babinyar? Need I point you to the Holocaust? Need I point you to the Stalinist purges, to modern China, North Korea? Um, the idea that governments alone can be trusted uh, to have our best interest in mind is an is a historical absurdity. I mean, it's is absolutely laughable. So when I think about this speech of Biden condemning not just a few Americans, 
Uh, not not the the shooter in Memphis, not um, some uh, um, you know evil individual, but that he's he's calling roughly eighty five million Americans semi fascist. I find that highly problematic. And I think that the way that we got here was during COVID, and I think it snuck up on us. Where three years ago you can say it's not here, and now you look upon your neighbor. Um, especially during COVID, well, were they wearing a mask? Were they sick? They were a human germ. You began to, you know, be suspicious of everybody. So here we have a president who's just casting blame on 81 million Americans. And you're like, well, maybe he's right. I mean, you have that little nugget of doubt that was planted, that seed, and it's grown. And it's frankly terrifying that we are where we are. Yeah, I agree. Um, I'm reading uh, a great old book, um, The Death of America or The Death of the West um, by Pat Buchanan. And one of the I things... I saw it sitting around here a minute ago. I've obviously, I dropped it on the ground um, because I had it in my lap. There were so many good points in it, but one of the things they talked about was snatching away our memory. And I think that's the other part of what's happening is we cannot forget what historically has happened over time when they come in and they say, well, we'll take your guns. Yeah. That'll be enough. Because I think that reference to the guns in the speech, you think that's all you'll need yeah. to defeat your government is your gun, uh, struck a deep and terrifying nerve within me when he brought that up, because I think you're exactly right. We have to look at history to remember what happens when we say, okay, here, you can have them. We trust you, government. Father government, we trust you. It never ends well. No. No, it doesn't. It's interesting to me that uh, I, I think, what, 12 books of the Old Testament are histories and that the Lord commanded Israel to commemorate their history, you know, that there were ceremonies that were all about remembering their history, um, the Passover, the celebration of their deliverance from Egypt. Um, in in a sense, this is what communion is. Um, we're remembering the blood that was that was shed for for us for our salvation. Well, what is true in a spiritual sense is also true in in the life of a people in a nation, in terms of remembering um, past wickedness, um, wrongs, uh, things that they've they've triumphed over and overcome, past victories heroes in the uh, in the life of a nation. And so I think your point that, you know, the obliteration of memory, the obliteration of the past and the rewriting of it, this is what we're seeing, you know, with the, the, the toppling of statues, um, the destruction of, of a past, again, with a cynical retelling. And I want to just put some emphasis on this for our for our viewers because, when we're talking about any individual, I don't care who you choose to name, we can retell their stories, your story, my story, by stringing together failures and using facts. As I say, I see this all the time as a writer, where facts are used to string together a false narrative. In other words, I could tell your story in such a way that I use factual events, you know, this happened, this happened, this happened, but where my overarching story is false, where I'm retelling it in the blackest light possible. 
That's what has happened with what what is happening right now with the history of our country. And it is what is happening. And and I want to be clear, by the way, I don't worship at the altar of the uh, the United States. I I don't believe heaven will be lined with with um you know with American flags. I I, I don't believe that. But I do believe that um, this country, which was founded on largely, not exclusively, the Enlightenment is a uh, is a mixed bag, but the French Enlightenment was aggressively atheistic, while yes. the English Enlightenment was very Christian. And uh, we were founded chiefly, not exclusively, but chiefly on English Enlightenment principles that have their foundation in a Judeo-Christian worldview. So that even those founding fathers who are not themselves Christians, like, say, for instance, Benjamin Franklin or Thomas Jefferson, they were heavily, heavily influenced by those Judeo-Christian principles and, uh, and ideas. And so I believe that this country is worth preserving because I recognize that millions, untold millions, hundreds of millions of lives are at stake when we're talking about this. And it matters to me that my my children grow up and my grandchildren and, you know, um, God willing one day, great-grandchildren should uh, grow up in a country where there is religious freedom, where they have freedom um, to, to be what they would be, you know, for better or for worse, that the choices are theirs um, that they make. That is not the direction the Biden administration wants us to go. And ladies and gentlemen, if you believe that Christians should not engage in politics, what you are what you are effectively saying is is that the Bible, our God, our Lord, has nothing relevant to say about that sphere of human activity. And when we are talking about literally millions of lives that are at stake, let's just take abortion. Let's just take the sexualization of children. Does God have something to say about that? I think he does. And I think it's cowardly to sit on the sideline and do nothing about it. Uh, You can just keep on preaching about that. Because I think right now in culture, you do find, especially as people are engaging in politics locally and then on a national level, you do have pastors even saying, well, you shouldn't be involved in that. Yeah, and they're usually the most political people. We are just going to heaven. And you don't need to worry about that. This world is not our home. <laughs> and you're like, uh, really? Yeah. Have you read the Bible? Do you know what was happening then? Do you realize that even as Jesus was born, oh my goodness, I'm going to talk about the New Testament, that they had to register with the census. They they knew who was yeah. within their city walls. So this idea that we don't need to be involved is ridiculous. Or if we can't travel anywhere, that also means in those mission trips that people like to take, they're not going to be free to go there yeah, of as well. So there's so many things that will go away if we choose to sit on the sidelines instead of taking God and his word as a living, his word is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. It is quite relevant, and it is um, the universal thread through time and history um, that, that binds his people together. So we've got to be on the front lines. But you said something really important, and this was earlier in the show, and I want to go back to it. And even though I, I said that I was triggered when I was listening to the speech, you made a point that that was his point in part. Yes, was to I, I believe so. Trigger people. And I want to talk about that because I loved in your article how you tied in the night, and I'm going to say the city wrong in Germany, Reichs, Reichstag. How do you say that? The Reichstag. Okay. 
I knew you'd know how to say that. You you tie that in. I'm sure in a German is, would say to me, no, it's Reichstag. Which you know, is I'm exactly sure it would, how we would just tell said me, it. Would tell me that I'm saying it wrong, but let's just say it, it, this is the anglicized version. Yeah. Okay, so the anglicized version, and, and so tying the triggering and wanting to trigger us, but also looking back to history so that we do not forget that that was also a triggering incident that they used to take over power. Yeah. So I wondered if you could kind of tie those together. Well, let's let's um let's go back to uh something you said earlier about uh because I think you're right that the the pandemic has been used as a way to sort of start ushering a lot of this stuff in. Well, interestingly enough, I I don't know who Carl, excuse me, uh who Klaus Schwab's Carl Rove is that you know his policy advisor, <laughs> but somebody needs to be saying to him as he's speaking on these videos, you probably shouldn't say that. But I'm glad that he is because <laughs> yes. because Klaus Schwab has said with that you know heavily you know German accent, super creepy, almost cartoonish. Yes, um, you know you you picture him petting a cat, <laughs> you know petting a cat <laughs> and saying the great reset. You know, we don't take over so the world. I mean, what is more creepy than the than the World Economic Forum's slogan? You will have you will have nothing, and you will be happy. Can you just finish with this? With that, that would you know, be that would be great. perfect. That would be perfect. It is it is really creepy stuff. But one of the things that he said is to admit that your assertion is true. He's he is a student of history. And Schwab says that during most um, crises, national crises, the power of government is exponentially increased. And he says that we must, we must not lose this moment. We must seize that power in order to move the world in a more scientific, it's always scientific, in a more scientific and humane you know, direction. This is, of course is the claim. So that's precisely, you know, what they're they're endeavoring to do. Now, as for the speech itself, I think that I think that you know, there, I, I think it was Sam Harris. Sam Harris is one of the so-called four horsemen of the new atheism, along with, you know, the late Christopher Hitchens, Daniel Dennett, who I've debated, Richard Dawkins, who I've debated, and uh uh, and Harris himself, and he was a cognitive scientist, I, I believe, at Stanford University. And um, uh, I'm always reassured when an atheist, you know, steps in to pronounce on morality. And Harris, you know, stepped in on Twitter, and he was getting a gazillion retweets where he was saying, you know, he had the picture of Biden with, as I say, the hellish blood red, um, you know, background, saying, this is a gaffe. This is a gaffe by Biden. And then he goes on to basically, you know, um, still, you know, blame Trump, you know, in some way, which is weird. Um, but Democrats knew they this was is this was very carefully choreographed. I agree. This is not a gaffe. The president of the United States, a gaffe is where, you know, instead of calling you, you know, Amy Beth Shaver, I say Amy Beth Smith. I mean, oh, excuse me. That, that's a gaffe. This is carefully orchestrated. They would have practiced this a number of times. They would have 
uh, you know, had a dry run on this and lit up the Capitol a number of times. It wasn't just a single colorblind person like myself, you know, who was in charge of this, in which case they might have said it was a gaffe because you know, Larry didn't know it was blood red. <laughs> but I mean, he thought it was orange. That's right. There be, Which would probably be true. Um, there would be dozens, if not hundreds of people who would be commenting on this and say, move this light there, have the Marines stand here like this. Yes, got it. So they knew exactly what they're doing, but they also knew that their own side, that is to say other leftists, other Democrats, are so ideologically bought in that they could get away with it because the Harrises of the world would say, just a gaffe, a mistake. Mm -hmm. But they also knew that the setting, the hallowed ground where they were, where the declaration you know, was signed... I mean, just behind the door just where he was standing. Them. Goodness. That he's standing on that hallowed ground that he knows lefties don't value at all, but that Republicans do, conservative Americans do. He's standing on that ground, the blood red background, and he's shaking his fist in Hitlerian fashion, meaning, I mean, it, it, it's a startling parallel. Yes. With if you pull up images of, of of Hitler speeches and then you see Biden there, by that I don't mean he's Hitler. That's not what I'm saying. But what I what I am saying is that it has that same megalomaniacal, mm, yes, frightening kind of look. So that you had Jews who were tweeting, "This speech terrifies me," because we have a very <laughs> embedded memory of another guy who gave speech like this. So it wasn't just me saying this. These were Jews who were also expressing alarm over, over a speech like this. So I think they knew their own side was so bought in that they could get away with it. And they also knew that this setting, this coloring, this uh, gesturing would trigger people like you who would say, oh my gosh, what is going on here? What 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 is what is up with this? And see, I maintain that the speech is an effort to spark a violent yes. response mm -hmm. from somebody wearing a MAGA hat um, that they can say, "Aha! See, these people are dangerous. They need to be eradicated." And my point in the article that you're referring to, which you can find on my website at LarryAlexTaunton.com. Uh, you just go there to the full Fathom Five blog, and you'll uh, you'll find it. My my argument is that they are doing their best to provoke. Yes, and we're just going to keep. I'm just going to keep provoking you, provoking mm -hmm. you, provoking you until you strike out. And then you know, here's a good example. If you watch any football, they often say that the guy who who hits second is the one who's flagged. <laughs> so that you have a guy who just keeps provoking another guy until that guy lashes out with a haymaker and then the flag is thrown and he gets thrown from the game. When you didn't know that the other guy has been doing this all along, I think that's what we've got going on. I think they're trying to provoke a violent response so that they can seize guns so that they can round people up, mass arrests, you name it. And in the historical examples that I used, the Reichstag fire, 1933, very famous. The Reichstag fire, if you're not familiar with it, it's like the, the Reichstag is like Capitol Hill. And um, the Nazis um, arranged for the burning mm -hmm. of the, uh, the Reichstag, but they blamed it on the Jews. So they came out and said, see, 
These people need to be eradicated from society. They're subversives. They're a problem. Um, Joseph Stalin, who openly admired, you know, I mean, this is pre-World War II, you know, the invasion of, of Russia by um, uh, four and a half million men, Operation Barbarossa, uh, June 22nd, 1941. It's still, you know, almost a decade off. So, he, you know, uh, Stalin openly admired Hitler's tactics in dealing with domestic enemies. And he saw what Hitler did with the Reichstag fire. He thought that was clever. He also thought the Night of the Long Knives, which came you know, much later, was also clever. So um, Stalin, the next year, 1934, his NKVD, which is the predecessor to the KGB, same thing, basically, they engineer the assassination of the very popular Sergei Kirov, uh, who's party secretary, I think, for Leningrad, um, a subordinate to Stalin. And um, they basically sort of let a um, an anarchist, uh, you know, wander into the, uh, you know, into the headquarters uh, where Sergei Kirov is and shoot him. And uh, and then Stalin used it to launch a four year purge where millions were arrested and executed or sent to Kolyma, you know, an area three times the size of France. In Siberia, so this is what they were doing. They were filling up their jails. They're filling up the gulag. Um, I think that the left Democrats thought they had their Kirov assassination, their their Reichstag moment with January six. You know, they, hence the reason they've been trying to drag it out and yes. drag it out and drag it out and say, "Aha! See these subversive elements in our midst. We we've got to get rid of them because they're semi-fascist." Quote Biden. But that's backfired because it hasn't it hasn't damaged as they hoped that it would do Trump in the polls. So when that didn't succeed, they you know have this raid on Mar-a-Lago, and they thought that Mar-a-Lago that, that this again, which is designed to smear Trump, um, that this would move the needle. It didn't. Trump's uh, popularity it just continues to soar. So now they've gone to the next level, and it demonstrates their pathological terror of, yes. of Trump. And, and I think I speak for Amy Beth when I, when I say this. If I don't, um, then, then certainly shoot me down. But I, I don't think this about Trump for you or for me. This is what they're calling MAGA is, is just traditional Conservatism is right. is what it is. It's Reaganism. It's right. uh, it's Barry Goldwater. It's it's Edmund Burke. I mean, it, this goes back a, a long way. So what they've tried to do is to redefine it as something that is just recently sprung out of the the head of Donald Trump and is a part of a cult of personality surrounding him and is fascist and needs to be destroyed. Sheer nonsense. The people who are voting for Trump are voting for him because they see him as the only figure who is speaking for them and who's strong enough to push back against the left. These are mostly middle class, often lower middle class, red state, decent Americans who simply want to be left alone. And I want to make this little distinction, Amy Beth. And we'll say this again when I come back around and we're discussing the World Economic Forum and utopians. The average person gets out of bed in the morning and thinks, I'll get a cup of coffee and I'm going to and think about what I'm going to do with my day. Leftists wake up in the morning and think about what you're going to do with your day too. Meaning these are individuals 
whose focus is on reorganizing humanity according to their own warped principles. You want to be, you want to live alone. Uh, excuse me. You want to be left alone, and you don't want to peek in somebody's w- windows and and what they're doing. You just you you want to live and let live. Right. That is a generally conservative mindset. It is not a leftist mindset. That's not how Biden thinks. It's not how uh, Democrats anymore think. It's not how these leftists think. They have no respect for the rule of law. They don't have a respect for legislative bodies. They uh, don't have a respect for the constitution of this country. And I'm going to put out this challenge to anybody who's listening to us. I put it out on Twitter. I put it out in my article. I saw that. And uh, and I'll put it out um, on TV as well. And it is this. If you are determined to call, uh, quote unquote, MAGA, if you're determined to call conservatives in this country fascists, I challenge you to give me a working definition of fascism that doesn't first and foremost apply to the left. I want I want to hear that definition. You see, because they don't offer it. What they do is it's, circ- it's a circular argument. You say, what is fascism? And they say, well, it's MAGA. <laughs> say, okay, all right, whatever. So what is MAGA that makes it fascist? Well, it's, you know, and so they just go back and they say, well, it's fascist. Fascism, and we'll discuss this um, on a on a later show in more detail. But what is fascism? Is it anti-democratic? Yes. Um, is it racist? Yes. Uh, is it? Uh, does it disregard the will of the people? Yes. Does it um, uh, reorganize industry, weaponize it against the people? Yes, it's all of these things. And all of this is emanating out of the left. You're not seeing this done by people um, on the right. It's election rigging. It's all that sort of stuff. And if there are some of you out there who think that there isn't election rigging going on, you just have your head in the sand. I mean, whether or not you you buy into uh, to, um, Dinesh D'Souza's film, 2000 Mules, which I do. I was I was at Mar-a-Lago to watch the uh, the premiere of that film, and I went somewhat skeptically, not because I didn't think that there's real election rigging taking up place, but I just didn't think they could prove it. And I thought I think he did. I think he uh, I think he made a very compelling case. But let's just dismiss that for a second. Let's just say that didn't happen. The fact that the the um, the uh, uh, the left Democrats were very involved with and still are meeting at you know the White House with big tech that there was an organized plan to suppress dissenting voices to kill the Hunter Biden laptop story just before the election, which demonstrated that Biden was taking money under the table mm. through right. through Ukraine, which is a big money laundering scam going on there. Censorship of your opponents is election rigging. That is election rigging. And we know for a fact, even the left themselves admit that they're doing that. So that is taking place. All of this is coming from the left. So we will finish this conversation and uh, wrap up with a couple other items. So stay tuned. We will be right back. All right, so you can imagine, uh, in a spirit of patriotism, <laughs> that I spent my weekend again watching John Wayne. Okay, wow, that's three weekends in a row. The stagecoach. Okay, that's the one where he, he twirls the the rifle. 
He twirls the rifle and his it's name's straight Ringo up, or something Ringo like that. Ringo Kid, the Ringo Kid. He he was in jail for a little bit, you know, did some things. That's the movie that made John Wayne. But it's the movie that made John Wayne. And so we watched it and I would like to tell you that Chris stayed awake for the entire movie. Sometimes he takes a nap. Um, but this one was fantastic. I liked the characters in it. I liked the story. I liked the redemption element because the girl was <laughs> embarrassed of who movie. she was. It was the showgirl, essentially the showgirl. Nice thing about having a head injury is I can watch these movies over and over again. Well, you like should I've never watch it again them. because it's fantastic. Is it? Yeah, there's a lot of really good elements in it. It's a little community on the stagecoach coming together for the lady, you know, to have her baby. And, um, you know, it was a great movie. It was absolutely fantastic. I had seen it years ago, but not, I don't know. We now have a whole library on Netflix of <laughs> saved John Wayne movies that we're just going to go through and click I didn't even know John off. Wayne would be on Netflix. I don't know if it's Netflix. I don't know. He's in charge of those such okay. things, which makes me sound like the little lady. Yeah. But he is. It's fine. I don't care. But the stagecoach was fantastic. And I don't know, have you guys in all of your football watching, have you seen anything good lately? You know, um, you know, I mentioned that we'd watched that Winds of War um, series and War and Remembrance, which is yeah. which is quite lengthy, which is quite long. But uh, I watched a couple of nights ago a fun movie that you would you would very much enjoy. It's called Hail the Conquering Hero. And I think the movie is maybe came out in 1945, possibly 46. Okay. So it's World War II era. And it's a sweet movie. It is a funny movie. And it's a plot that I, you know, so many of these old plots, you watch them and you realize, gosh, this has been remade 10 times. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you you watch Remember the Titans and you realize, oh, yeah, that's Glory Road. That's also, <laughs> you know, and it just keeps 42 and you just, you know, just right. keeps it just keeps going. The uh, this movie is about a guy who. Um, you know, he joins the Marine Corps. He comes from a, a long line of soldiers who fought for the country. And, you know, there's this expectation that he will be like all of them. He'll be a he'll be a hero. And um, he's rejected by the military on the basis of hay fever. You know, that he, he has a severe <laughs> case of hay fever. And so he's trying. So what he does is he gets a job, you know, somewhere in California or something and sends letters home that he's in the Pacific, you know, that he's like, you know, wherever. And uh, because he's too ashamed to say, Aww. I had hay fever of all things. I was not accepted and I can't go home not having fulfilled my family, you know, destiny. And he meets up with these battle hardened Marines, a bunch of nice guys who are out of money and they're uh, in a, in a bar somewhere and he buys them a, a drink and they uh, they start chatting and they realize his predicament. And so they decide to take him home as one of their war buddies, a meaning they take him to his own family. They oh say, my goodness. you can't do this to your mother. You have to go home and we'll just tell her that you've fought with us in Guadalcanal. <laughs> and so they put him in uniform and they take him home and it, you know, it's one of those films where the line just leads to bigger More. and bigger problems. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the film is, it's very funny and they, he doesn't like the plan, but they're, they're standing in front of crowds saying, and then we saw the Japs coming over the hill. And what did he do? He steps up, 
picks up a machine gun and starts mowing them all down. And, and he's sitting there going, oh my gosh, what am I going to do here? And so it's the, the film is sweet. It's funny. you got a little romantic element, but one of those kind of films that isn't going to you know offend you. Okay, well, then we'll watch it. Yep, you got so to. So thank you for that. And I'll make the child who's home for the weekend watch it with me. So it's perfect. Hail the conquering hero. Hail the conquering hero. We'll let you know. All right, so thank you. Um, very much. Yeah. And we thank John for being with, yeah, with us Yeah, thank you, today. John, for being with us. Rusamiza. That is what he said. Close. Thanks, John. Uh, and you guys, we'll see you next time. Thank you for staying tuned. Turn out the lights. The party's over. <laughs> they say that all. Ladies and gentlemen. We are grateful for the standing ovation, but there will be no encore for today's performance. Please exit the building in an orderly fashion. Thank you. Honey, can we leave now?